Oscar Podcast. Cinema.com, Ryan Adams, and me, Sasha Stone from AwardsDaily.com, with special guest Michael Gray. Are you guys up for this? <laughs> yeah, I'm. I'm thinking about how the, how um, this year relates to 1997 in some ways, and the fact that what you were saying earlier about, uh, and what we said last week about how 1996 was the year of the independent films, and the studio heads were pretty mad about that that the that the studio pictures got left out of the best picture race in the Academy Awards almost entirely, and, and they came back in a big way with Titanic in 1997, though, and some other major studio films. So as much as people were worried that the independents were taking over in 1996, they sure rectified things this year. Well, one funny thing, yes, that's very true. And and, um, Michael and I actually noticed from 1997 we were watching um, The Postman, the uh, Kevin Costner epic flop, The Postman. Um, It actually takes place in 2013. (laughs) So it's funny that in Kevin Costner's apocalyptic view of the world in 2013, they have completely bypassed the Internet. And, like, the Internet has so changed our world in every way we communicate, in every way we do business, in every way we buy things. How cool would the Postman have been if it was made in a post-apocalyptic world where the Internet's been totally dismantled and people have to start all over again, and then suddenly he's the Postman? I mean, that Mm -hmm. would be so cool, wouldn't it? Anyway, it really would. But I'm, you know, for me, one thing about 1997 and even 1994, 95, 96 and all of the late 90s, I wasn't in America. I was living overseas. I was in Thailand for seven years. I didn't even step foot in America for for seven years. And I was also not on the Internet then. I, I didn't even have my own laptop. And I know that probably a lot of people did in 1997, but I wonder how really prevalent the Internet was in 1997. It, it, it certainly kept me in the dark about what was going on about movies. Oh, no, um, it wasn't prevalent at all. That's why I'm yeah. saying. I know, of course, he wouldn't have added it in there because nobody okay. was using it. I was using it. I was on 1994. I was I was heavy into it. I, I got pregnant off the Internet in 1997. So I remember <laughs> it was very much a part of my life. Now there's a movie. <laughs> but I'm just saying. I mean, you know, uh, but uh, no, there, I mean, there was barely a World Wide Web then. There wasn't even, we, we communicated through, you know, ether, you know, through uh, listservs and things like that and chat and, and AOL. Well, I and, didn't, didn't even know. I didn't even know what was happening here in America at that time. I wasn't even sure if the, the Internet had started to catch on yet because I was so out of it. It was I didn't just even starting, that, but it was before need- the dot-com boom and it was before the dot-bomb. It was before people thought that they could make money out of it. So 
certainly back then no one could conceive that the majority of people who meet meet online and that a lot of people are working online and that almost everything that gets sold now is sold online. It's just funny how our – and we have, there's Facebook and Twitter. I mean now the postman takes place in 2013. It's just funny because it's all about the U.S. mail. That's what it's about, the U.S. Mm-hmm. mail. So and yeah, It's kind of funny because we communicate by all the other stuff. No one really gets letters from the mail anymore except maybe it's from an elderly relative who doesn't know how to use the Internet. So when you watch The Postman today, it's kind of outdated if you watch it today. Right. <laughs> it's, it's very outdated. It's like it's one of the few films that were made, what, what, about 13, 14 years ago that it has become so outdated so quickly. Only because of that small little factor yeah. is that the mail instead because we use the I internet know, today. And, and it's, it's so funny. Cause I mean, it cost how much money, Michael? Did it cost? Um, the movie cost like close to two hundred million. And it, how much did it make again? It, it made about thirteen million at the box yeah. office. And it was like, oh. if you watch it, it's so surreal because nowadays movies like that you don't see big sets you see green everything's done on green screen everything's done with cgi but this is he built these huge sets you know and it's like it's a huge sprawling western futuristic western with you know thousands of cast members i mean it's like a it's like a david lean movie for god's sake it's huge and so in that way it's totally anachronistic because they do not make movies like that anymore it just costs too much money and then suddenly at the end tom petty appears he's in the movie like from nowhere here's tom petty it was very as weird. tom petty as tom petty yeah you used to be famous didn't you and he said yeah i was famous i'm not have you seen it craig have you seen the postman not for years i don't yeah. remember it. Right i now. never did see it i wonder how this was how he ever got it made after the disaster that Waterworld was he totally I'm, got it made well he didn't direct Waterworld. that wasn't he, oh that's he true directed, yeah that's... yeah so he directed this one they, you know well Kevin Costner was the hottest property at that time. He was still hot. But when, when The Postman came out, that was his beginning of his downfall in the movies. You know, he, his films just, they weren't really willing to give him money anymore to make movies, especially that kind of money. I mean, that movie grossed about $17 million worldwide. And, yeah. was, and it cost, like I think, like 180 some million to make. Um, yeah, I mean, it was incredible. And why did I watch it? Well, it's weird. You know, we were, were revisiting 1997. Um, it was the year that, uh, oh, no, Kevin Costner and Kevin Reynolds both directed Waterworld, by the way, to correct. They did? Are you sure? Yeah, I'm looking on IMDb right now. Kevin Costner and Kevin Reynolds. I don't know. Oh, okay. I thought he was more of, okay, I thought he just started. I think that he no. directed it. No, no, but 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 look at look at the two movies, The Postman and Titanic, and both of them were rumored to be to have cost way too much money, and they were these huge epics driven by these, what you could really say were egomaniacal directors who wanted everything, who wanted the fucking moon and the stars and the sun. And, and Costner used a lot of CGI, mostly, and, but, I mean, uh, Cameron and Costner didn't. And one turned out to be an epic flop, and one became the greatest hit of all time. Interesting, isn't it? Now, Costner, or uh, Cameron's movie, Titanic, obviously, is, is formula, formula, formula. Like, he, he doesn't deviate from the formula. It's the bland love. Should we, should we start with Titanic, since it won sure. uh, Best Picture? We'll get Titanic out of the way early, and then we'll talk about the other ones. Um, he must have been nervous, but he never faltered. They assumed he was one of them. Heir to a railroad fortune, perhaps. New money, obviously, but still a member of the club. 
Mother, of course, could always be counted upon. Tell us of the accommodations and steerage, Mr. Dawson. I hear they're quite good on this ship. The best I've seen, ma'am. Hardly any rats. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Dawson is joining us from the third class. He was of some assistance to my fiance last night. It turns out that Mr. Dawson is quite a fine artist. He was kind enough to show me some of his work today. Rose and I differ somewhat in our definition of fine art. Not to impugn your work, sir. You may be mine on paper. In the eyes of God, she belongs to Thomas Amber. Let this all for me. Just start from the outside and work your way in. He knows every rivet in her, don't you, Thomas? Indeed. Your ship is a wonder, Mr. Andrews, truly. Thank you, Rose. How do you take a caviar, sir? No caviar for me, thanks. Never did like him much. And where exactly do you live, Mr. Dawson? Well, right now, my address is the RMS Titanic. After that, I'm on God's good humor. And how is it you have means to travel? I work my way from place to place. You know, tramp steamers and such. But I won my ticket on Titanic here at a lucky-handed poker. A very lucky hand. Mm. All life is a game of luck. Mm. A real man makes his own luck, Archie. Right, Dawson? Hmm. And you find that sort of rootless existence appealing, do you? Well, yes, ma'am, I do. I mean, I've got everything I need right here with me. I've got air in my lungs and a few blank sheets of paper. I mean, I love waking up in the morning not knowing what's going to happen or who I'm going to meet, where I'm going to wind up. Just the other night, I was sleeping under a bridge, and now... Here I am, on the grandest ship in the world, having champagne with you fine people. I'll take some of that. I figure life's a gift, and I don't intend on wasting it. You never know what hand you're going to get dealt next. You learn to take life as it comes at you. Oh, here you go, Cal. To make each day count. Well said, Jack. Yeah, yeah. To make me count. To make it count. Titanic was, remains the movie that has been nominated for 14 Oscars, joining only two other movies that also had 14. What are they, Michael? Only one. Only one, which is? All, all About Eve. Okay, and it, it won, don't tell me, don't tell me, it won, it won a, a record number of Oscars that only two other movies have won the same amount, and that's 11 Oscars, right? It mm -hmm. won 11? Right, And what right. are the other two movies? Ben-Hur. And? Lord of the Rings, Return of the King. <laughs> there you go. So Titanic is a historical Oscar juggernaut, as they say. It was totally... Um, the year started out with L.A. Confidential winning all of the Critics' Awards. Um, but once Titanic started having its repeat, Leo DiCaprio lovers um, driving its box office, it's clear, it became clear at some point it was going to be, you know, some unlike the box office had ever seen. And it remained that until Avatar took it over. Titanic is, I think, the best and worst film of all time at the same time. Like, it is so bad, and it's so good. I don't know how it manages to do that. Because it's so good in some ways, and it's so bad in other ways. It's so good technically. It's so visually extravagant to look at. It's really thrilling, but it's so bad script-wise, and the dialogue is so bad, and the characterizations are so bad. Characterizations are so bad. I know. I you know that, that's a movie that should have had two directors, 
um, James Cameron for the second half and a, another director for the first half. That's what it should have been because James Cameron is an action director. He's good at doing the action, and he's not a actor's director. He's not. And he's so, not a writer. Yeah, and a writer, and, it, and he should have got another person to write it. It probably would have been a much better film. Like I like, and because I, I mentioned to Sasha, and I told Sasha this because this is a film that you either love it or hate it at the same time. Well, interesting you say that because of talking about All About Eve, the 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 reason that Titanic was able to tie the nominations for All About Eve is because uh, it got a visual effects nomination, which what didn't exist and wouldn't have. And it's, I think no, it got a sound nomination that All About Eve would not have even received, even if it had been a category back then, which it wasn't. But All About Eve got a screenplay nomination, of course, because it's a brilliant screenplay. Right. The one the one um, gaping hole in in Titanic's. Uh, um, slate of, of nominations was screenplay. Cameron did not get a screenplay nomination, right? Obviously. And the thing about it is that is that um, it, you know it is it is terribly written, but you can't criticize Titanic because people will always say, "Well, it was the greatest success of all time." I mean, you can't like when people say, "Oh, they should have done like Michael." You're saying he should have got this. Well, how much how much could he have improved on a movie that? Was, is so beloved and continues to be beloved by people all over the world for all time. I mean, I don't know what business the movie business is supposed to be. I don't know what movies are really intended for or who they're for. But I, you got to think that a movie that is that effective to people. And that's to- the thing is you, you could make it a better movie, but you couldn't make it a more popular movie by making it better. It, it's, it's part of its popularity is because it plays to the cheap seats. It works on an eight-year-old, and it works on an 80-year-old, and it works generally on everybody in between. You can be snobby about the, the terrible writing, but it, 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 it works. And, you know, it just, it, it, you, you it will look at it and you can laugh and you can be cynical about it, but at the same time, it, it, it makes you feel. He knew that he was dealing with with archetypes and and general, you know, uh, I can't think of the word I'm trying to think of, but it, it it's its popularity is because of its of the way the way that it was made. If, if you made a smarter movie, it wouldn't have been as popular of a movie. The dialogue, as corny as it is, it's almost retro in that way. It harkens back to the movies of the of some of the movies of the 1950s, where the dialogue was corny because just because and it, 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 because of the time. You know, it just wasn't very sophisticated. A lot of movies back then weren't sophisticated. That really caught the public's attention. And and uh, uh, Titanic doesn't pretend to be sophisticated that way. It doesn't want to be. It doesn't need to be. It's well, a throwback it, to a more naive time in general. Well, the movie, in my opinion, played to um, a younger audience. I don't think it really played to um, a more um, the adult audience. It played to that young audience, people that were really driving the box office at that time. You know, teenage girls and w- women in their 20s dragging their boyfriends to go see this movie. I mean, and because they all fell for the love story, which I personally did not fall for the love story. I, I just didn't buy it one iota, you know, only because I, and maybe I'm being too critical, but if you know the history of that time period and on the Titanic, they would have never have met at all. She, he was considered steerage. She was first class. There were strict rules on the Titanic at that time period. They were never, then they abided by those rules. They would never have met. But because it's a love story, it's romance, um, 
they just disregarded all of that. Well, you know? I know. I mean, it's it's a silly. I mean, that's the Cinderella fan- fantasy part of the story, though. That in a way you have to sort of give camera credit for coming up with the with that deceit that it, or conceit that it could work that way because they're they're. You can That's the kind of thing you'd love to see happen, even though it might not have happened. I agree with you. Uh, Jack would not have been able to just roam all over the ship like he did. He would have been caught and sent back down, and probably locked up in his in his in his room in, in the lower decks. But you wouldn't have a movie then. And then that's, that's part of what makes the movie. That's the one thing about the movie that I really do like is the social. Um, contrast that's going on between the upper class and lower class plus michael you said another thing when we were watching it you said that it's 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 really con- it, it really makes a movie about modern people like they don't seem like they're of that era they seem like they're of today like leonardo dicaprio is a heartthrob of of today of 1997 not of you know what a heartthrob would have been back then i mean and it's true He's blindingly beautiful in <laughs> Titanic. Mm-hmm. Emma and I were watching it and just going, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Because, you know, Leo has evolved and changed so much over the years. Um, but but really, when you see him now, after all these years after his career, and you just look at that face and that hair and those eyes, I mean, it's no wonder he, he drew people to the theater. I mean, he's prettier than she is in this movie. <laughs> it was interesting for me to watch him because he, I, I don't remember since seeing him so open and unguarded right. and so reliant on his pure looks and charm. Ever since then, he seems to have gotten into this mode where he's trying desperately to be taken seriously, and I think it's actually restrained him in certain ways. He's been great in certain movies, but there's this this guardedness about him that was totally lacking in this movie, and it was actually one of the more appealing things about it for me. Absolutely. Watching the game. It was the f- his first leading role, I believe, wasn't it? The first film that he was a leading man? Yeah. I think yeah, so. so it really. So he was so. If this movie had bombed, he probably wouldn't be where he is today. Well, what happened with him was that it be- he became a phenomenon, a worldwide phenomenon. He still is. The, the people that worshipped him, the, the women, the girls that fell in love with him then, follow him now even. I mean, he, it's, it's been hard for him to break out of that. And I think it really freaked him out. when it. And he said it, actually, in interviews, that it freaked him out, that he was thought of that way, that he was worshipped in that way, that he was idolized by women as this romantic figure. And I think that's what you're talking about, Craig. Like after that, he kind of looks like, you know, he wants to break free of that. He doesn't want to be that guy. And it, and in a way like Michelle Pfeiffer, who didn't want to be beautiful. And, you know, it's almost like they work against their, their own worst enemy because they can't just get comfortable in this kind of godlike creation that the people have turned them into. Right. And they want to be taken seriously. They don't want to be dismissed as just, you know, a pretty face. And so they try extra hard to... It's more than just being handsome and pretty, though, because he's got the quality about him that even when he was 22, when he made Titanic, he looked like a teenager. And for decades after that, he still looked like a teenager. He he had a, He's always had this boyish appearance that has prevented him from really um, sliding into adult roles um, his face hasn't gotten craggy like a lot of actors do when they get older. You know, he right. still has that really boyish quality about him. He's and that's pretty. part of the reason. Yeah, he is still, it is, it's pretty, but it's also, I think it has to do with a, with a, with something about his spatial structure, the youthfulness that, that he just hasn't aged at all. I know, but even still, I mean, Emma will tell you, you know, she, she's like, now he's, she says his face is square. She's like, he turned into a square. Like kids, kids, you know, they just, everything is always so, they're so honest because they don't really know anything about 
what they're talking about. Like when Emma Emma said recently that they were filming on her campus, and she said, "Oh yeah, mom, they were filming a movie. You know, it was that you know that Dances with Wolf dude, that you know Costner, Kevin Costner." <laughs> I just laughed so hard because they don't live in the era of Kevin Costner where he was a, such a huge superstar. You know, now right. he's just whoever he was. You know that, but uh, but Leo. I mean, I really need to, I, I, I hope I'm articulating properly how startling it is to look at him in Titanic, to see what he was and what he looked like in that movie, because he does look different than he does now. He, he's a, he's a Peter Pan. He's like this, this, you know, very feminine looking angular, you know, with these blistering blue eyes and this swath of blonde hair and the swagger, you know, he's like... Craig is right. Like, he didn't know what he was yet. So he was really comfortable in his body, you know. Well, that's why I find him, like, every time I see him do roles where he's supposed to play older than he he, he is, I just don't find it believable. You know, like, The Aviator. I couldn't believe that he was Howard Hughes. I I just didn't see it. It it just went beyond, like, I, I saw, like, it was like he was playing dress up. He was, like, too baby face to believe that he was Howard Hughes. I mean, um, I didn't believe that he was um, J. Edgar Hoover. I mean, it, he, he just doesn't come across to me as um, someone who changes with the roles that he that he's given. It's always Leonardo DiCaprio. That's who I see. Oh, well, I disagree with you there. For me, he's he's learned how to... He's became, become a really good actor over the years, and especially when he played an aviator and... Uh, and in, in my opinion, in J. Edgar, I know that it got panned and everything, but f- as an actor, from, and in, by the way, Great Gatsby, he's fantastic in Great Gatsby. He is, absolutely. I would like, to, I would, wouldn't mind at all seeing him get nominated for, for Great Gatsby. And although now I, I, it looks like for sure that he stands a better chance with The Wolf of Wall Street. Oh, but yeah. uh, earlier this summer, I was thinking that, why not? That could happen, because he, he made that movie. Yeah, he's really good in it. And, and I know you're right, Michael, a lot of people have that impression of him and that they won't ever really forget that he's babyface Leo. But I think that as an actor, the work that he does, he can't fix his face. You know, his face is his face. But as an actor, I think he's really challenged himself and and has overcome who he was in Titanic. Not that he needed to overcome it. I mean, my God, perfect role, perfect actor. Right, and that's what we're talking about. We're talking about his his effect that he had on people, especially the audiences worldwide, and the and the, and the what you were talking about, Michael, about the not only the teenage girls dragging their boyfriends to see it and dragging their girlfriends to go see it, but over and over again, going back to see it multiple times. That's how you earn a billion dollars. You don't make a right. billion dollars by by going to see a movie once. You make a billion dollars by getting the audience to come back and see your movie again and again. And that's what happened. And that's why it was a it was a it was a cultish thing going on on the same level as the Twilight movies that we've seen recently. Right. You know? exactly. well, the, well, the last time people were seeing a movie over and over and over again was Star Wars 20 years prior. People mm-hmm. were seeing Star Wars four and five times, and the same thing was happening with Titanic. And Titanic was the only film, I think, every week it grossed over $20 million for what, how many weeks? It was number one for like 10, 12 weeks in a row. It was always in the $20 million, $25 million range. It never went below that for like 10 straight weeks or something like that. It was just amazing. Yeah. Right, we talk, talk about a juggernaut. I, I'm looking at the box office figures right now. LA Confidential, which was winning, as you said, Sasha, winning all the critics' awards, um, had earned... Thirty-nine million dollars before the Oscar nominations. The same week, 
Titanic had already earned $338 million. Oh, my God. $338 million between Christmas and and um, the beginning of February. And believe it or not, I remember because I was I was on online writing about movies with my cinema group at that point, and and this is how this is one of my the ways that the Oscars started to fascinate me because I started to think about um, uh, Titanic beating LA Confidential, and a lot of my friends were saying, "No way, LA Confidential is going to win. Titanic is so bad. A mo- movie that bad can't." But you just knew Titanic was going to win. It had to win. It ha- it couldn't be stopped. Um, so that was one of the years that that um, that for me was a fascinating Oscar year because it, it did introduce this idea of a movie. Although Schindler's List was that movie too, that's just too big to ignore. You know, the, every once in a while, and Return of the King is another one. A movie comes along that is just too big to ignore. Period. Titanic has another component of the story behind it in terms of the whole year or two during the making of it. It was widely assumed that it was going to be this huge failure and it was probably going to sink 20th Century Fox and it was going to be this this massively expensive bomb and uh, and then it was just huge. And it, it, at the, uh, As you've already said, it made more money than any other movie at the time and it, it, I think that success story, I think, Played into its appeal for people voting for it more than on top of the movie itself, which they obviously liked. The story behind it, um, well, I, James- I think there was a little bit of buyer's remorse, though, um, because his his I seem to recall his acceptance speeches were sort of egotistical and irritating. Yeah, and um, he got in a big fight with Kenneth Turin over the film leading up to the Oscars. Uh-huh. That there was a Turin had panned it um, to begin with. One of the few critics, I think, that really crapped on it. Yeah. And then he kind of kept hitting that button because the more money it would make, he kept writing writing about how terrible it was. And finally, uh, Cameron wrote this snotty letter to the paper that they published that was all defensive, and it just it, it didn't sound like somebody who'd made a billion dollars. It was right. it was kind of weird. It was more than one letter like that 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 uh, Cameron wrote. There was another person who who had when the movie was still in production, they wrote a, a, an expose kind of scandal article about the way that he was treating people on set and the working conditions and the injuries that had happened on set and everything and Kate Winslet even come out and said uh, that he was hellish to work for and everything and so there was this big article that came out and so Cameron disputed that too. He was fighting uh, with a lot of uh, open letters to the industry about this movie defending his the movie and, and, his, own, and his own behavior. Yeah, he kind of came off, and that that whole thing sort of soured me on the movie. The success of it at the box office, the success of it at the Oscars, and sort of his behavior and attitude made me dislike the movie for a solid ten years until I sat down and watched it again this this for the first time and since um, over the course of the weekend, um, and I I softened on it quite a bit just watching the movie removed from all of the all of the hype and all of the nonsense. It's still not a great movie, but it's it's an entertaining movie and it and it works on its own level. Yeah, like I said before, that when I was living overseas, I didn't even see so many of the movies that the Oscar nominations would come out year after year between 1994, 95, and 96. The Oscar nomination would come out, and I would not have seen any of the movies because they either didn't come to Thailand yet, or I hadn't gotten around to seeing them, and I didn't know anything about them. I wasn't reading about them in the, in the, uh, into Entertainment Weekly, and I wasn't seeing uh, Entertainment Tonight on television or anything, and I didn't have access to a library or the internet or anything. And so when these names would come up, I didn't even know what was going on. We did hear about Titanic because of the, of the all the rumors were, that were going on about what it, how much over budget it was. That movie, that, that news did fil- filter in 
um, to the news agencies in Thailand. And we also heard about it because in 1997, the Thai stock market crashed really badly, like the Thai currency lost half of its value against the dollar, and the headlines everywhere were saying Titanic. You know, Thai Titanic because because Thailand was sinking. And so we were really aware of it. But a lot of people had the same attitude that you did, Craig. They were turned off about it. They were not interested in seeing it. None of my friends wanted to go see it. My partner wouldn't go see it with me. But I got a call from my mother in December asking me if Titanic had come to Bangkok yet. And luckily it had. It was one of those few movies that did have a, a worldwide, you know, day and day premiere around the around the world in different places. And so I went to see it. Uh, I think it was the day after Christmas I saw it, and I was really impressed by it. I was impressed by it in the same way that I was impressed the first time that I saw Avatar. Just blown away by how much better it was than I thought it was going to be. And the sheer spectacle of it. Mm-hmm, the, the spectacle of it. Yeah. And. Just, just after hearing how much it was going to be a disaster, that how it was a, it was a movie that was in trouble, and how they had blown all this money and it was going to be a, you know a bomb, I was just really had really low expectations. I remember walking out um, of the theater in Hollywood after having seen it. I believe I was pregnant. And, um, it, it made you pregnant. I was on the internet and I got pregnant on the internet, and then I went to see Titanic pregnant. But I remember thinking, walking out, going, "God, that was the worst movie. That was a terrible movie." But then, as the night wore on, I thought, "I got to go back and see that movie. I got to go back yeah. and see Titanic. I got to go back and see. I got to go. Oh my God, I got to go." And I, I did. I ended up being one of those like repeat viewers. There was just something about it I, mm-hmm. that I couldn't let go of. It, it just kept haunting me. It was the song. It was the Titanic itself. The real story of the Titanic. It was the thing that makes me drool about that movie is the same thing that makes me drool about Gravity, which is the fucking special effects, the the art direction, the costumes, the dishes, you know, mm-hmm. the the hats on the women in the sitting room, the the, the the meticulous detail, the the underwater footage of the real Titanic. All the, I mean, that is a thing about that movie that that is absolutely beyond reproach is the attention to detail. Well, then I heard I, I heard that Cameron, when he had the the, the dinnerware replicated, uh, he he wanted to have exact duplicates of the dinnerware that was actually on the Titanic. Titanic. He actually had the, the the label printed on the bottom of the plates that no one would see. No one would ever see the the label yeah. on the bottom of the plates, right? But he had that duplicated exactly as they were on the Titanic. That's how it obsessive he was about it. It really shows everything about it. The corsets, the I mean, and 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 by the way, to that he does have one embarrassing blunder, which I don't think is a blunder because it's a deliberate thing, but it's just typical dumb thing he would do, which is that he has famous paintings that are currently hanging in museums right now, as <laughs> right, right. sunk with the Titanic, and that was so frustrating because I was like, really really you're gonna do that like with all the attention to detail he's paying he's gonna throw in a really famous picasso and, and a monet painting that are like can be seen right now right and those were groaner lines too when the villain of the piece you know he says oh picasso he'll never amount to anything yeah, i mean those kind of lines really make you roll your eyes it's over the first hour and a half of the movie when i first saw it i was thinking this is a stinker this is <laughs> this is rotten right. i mean i really appreciate the production design and everything but it's just terrible but once once the ship's starts to sink then it really grabs you and that's the kind of thing you want to go back and see again that's it exactly as soon as they hit the iceberg it becomes a great the greatest like at first it's terrible and then it gets right it's the moment that they hit the berg everything Mm -hmm. changes the music changes the pacing changes the whole film changes and it becomes exciting when the ship docks i'm getting off with you 
This is crazy. I know. It doesn't make any sense. That's why I trusted. That's what it takes for us to get warm. I'd rather not if it's all the same year, all right. Fucking <laughs> me! Pick up, you bastards!
And you know, and if you watch the film, it parallels 9/11 in so many levels. Because um, when the iceberg, when the ship hits the iceberg, they tell people on the ship, "Don't panic. Everything's going to be okay. Stay in your rooms and all that stuff." And they, they did the same thing with 9/11. Once the the first plane hit, they told everyone else. Everything, stay calm, stay where you are. It, even people in the opposite tower, they told them to stay where they are. And mm-hmm. then when the ship um, begins to sink, it, it breaks apart. People start jumping off the ship. The same thing happened with 9-11. People started jumping out of the windows and stuff like that. I mean, there's a lot of parallel. And they were the tallest buildings in the world. At, uh, I don't know at the time, but they were the tallest, tallest buildings, at least in the United States. That the Titanic was the largest ship ever built. I mean, it's very parallel to 9-11. I always wondered, if this film had come out three years later in 2001, would it have done as well because of 9-11, if it had come out three years later? Uh, it's an interesting point. I had, it's, that's creepy to, to draw those parallels. I mean, I had never thought of it that way before. I think that people do kind of get, I think, probably right after 9-11, it might have, people might have had enough of a disaster in real life to... to Um, but yeah, that's that's the thing is that uh, I don't know the, the romance is so transporting. It's so to see Kate Winslet rescued by like the cutest man ever invented is you know it's it's pretty mesmerizing even now to see that that the way it's that elemental they, like a fairy tale. It's elemental like a fairy tale, yes. And so perhaps it doesn't have a happy ending. And I'm still the thing that bugged me most about that movie was that he didn't try to get onto that floaty with her. I still think that he could have fit onto that floaty, you know? Uh, and why would he not do that? Why would he just sit there in the ocean and die? Like, at least try to get on the thing. Because it made the little girls cry. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, for me, and I know I'm being too critical, but what I found unbelievable about this whole thing was, um, like I said in the beginning, I really didn't buy the love story. But I didn't, towards the end, you know, when she is old and she drops the diamond in the water and then she dies and then she um her spirit whatever goes back on the ship and everybody else is young and then she's all she she's young too it's to me it's like after she was rescued from the titanic she went on to live a good life she married a man i don't know how many years she was married but i get the impression she married this man for a number of years had children grandchildren maybe great-grandchildren who knows so she lived a wonderful life she only knew jack dawson for two days i just couldn't fathom that she um i know he saved her life that i can understand this guy saved her life from this tragedy but i just can't for the life of me just stomach the fact that she he was the love of her life for 60-odd years or 70-odd years, whatever, and she went on to have a fabulous life, married a man who she probably fell in love with, had children with. I just don't buy well, I know, that Michael, this was love whole, of her life. I don't, I don't buy he, that story. The I just whole reason don't. that she's even there at all is because of him. I mean, he, I, he I got understand her out of the, saved, if it wasn't for him, she would have been married. I understand that. 
She would have been married to Cal. She would have gotten saved as one of the rich people, taken her boat with Cal, and they would have gotten married, or she would have killed herself. So he meant everything to her. He was everything to her. her she owed him and, her whole life. He also told her as he was dying, you're going to go on to do this, Rose. You're going to go and get married, Rose, and have a lot of children, Rose. And you're going to die old in your bed, Rose. And she did everything that he told her to do. And yeah, when you have, when you have someone break your heart or you lose someone when you're 20 years old, you you do go ahead and have a life after that, Michael. You people do. Oh, get no, re- no I no, I understand that, and I, I, I know that, but I just can't. I just don't believe that after two days, this was the love of her life. I don't buy that. I'm sorry, I just don't. I, I know probably could get a lot of people who say, um, I don't know what I'm talking about, but I just don't buy two days of them. They fell in love, and then she. I, I don't know. I, I just don't get. I don't. I don't. Uh, buy yeah, it. I feel like is, is a lot of people. A lot of people go into a movie like that wanting to believe that they. They. That's what they want to believe about love and romance. That you can meet somebody on a boat and fall in love with them in two days and have them be the most important part of. Am life. I the only crazy one who, after two days of every relationship, I think it's the love of my life? No. I don't know. <laughs> two days into a relationship, I think that it is. I, it takes me a, a few weeks to find out that it isn't. But that two day period, I am thinking that it is. The love it, of my it life. Might be, when you that, fall in love with someone, you're in love with them, and that's all they. That you, that's your whole world. If you really have that that deep kind of falling in love at first sight with someone, and especially if they die in a horrible, tragic, you know, freeze to death, holding your hand, saying "Don't let yeah. go." After, they, but I, I will say this, Michael. Of. Even whether or not she was in love with him or not, it's not really addressed. The whole point of the ending is she's she's given a chance to revisit that time in her life, and she's paying homage to a guy who. Who really did make her life important? She doesn't go say, "Oh, this is this was the love of my life." She just says, "I'm putting this heart in the ocean, you know, for him." And here you are, you know. Here's a toast to you. Thank you for rescuing me. Thank you for saving me. And that is warranted. Yeah, I don't actually, get her. It's actually kind of moving. Even as an old cynic like me was actually was actually moved by that. You can't. You just can't get around what what he has done, which is something. No other director has really managed to do on that level, on that scale, I don't think. But um, let's move on, shall we? If we can ever yes. get through these other movies. Let's go to L.A. Confidential. Um, who wants to do L.A. Confidential? <laughs> I don't know if I can do it, but I can talk about how much I love it. And when I, when I finally got around to seeing L.A. Confidential, I thought, at last, as much as I have loved Chinatown all these years, there's finally a movie that comes along that can rival Chinatown, that can compare with Chinatown and stand alongside it, you know, proudly as, uh, as really the same sort of level as artistry and, and, uh, and depth of, of, uh, of meaning, too, I think. It's just an impeccable movie, I think. Probably it's got it's my favorite movie of the nineteen ninety seven for sure, like confidential. It's it's definitely mine, without a doubt. <laughs> Dead silence. I was waiting for Craig because I know you love the movie too. I've, I've it did. Been... It didn't really hold up for me that well this time. I'm sorry to say, I really liked it, but there was there it, it was a little too. Um, I don't know, like like when they would stumble across the clue and then they would have a flashback showing why what somebody said earlier was important. It seemed kind of corny to me. Mm-hmm. It just it didn't seem as sharp and smart as it used to. It's still great um, it, it, or really good, and it's extremely entertaining, and it's great to look at. And I have a, a fondness for it because it was I think it was one of the first movies that I saw 
as a fresh LA transplant. And so I was obsessed with all the location shots and, and all that kind of stuff. So I still have really fond memories of it, but it just didn't, it, uh, it used to bother me that it lost the Oscar, but now I, it, it doesn't bother me too much. That's weird. I sort of felt the same way. Like I found it to be, I hate to say it, it's awful because I haven't really revisited much since that, those years, but it was a little, I was a little frustrated with it. It was a little bit, um, slow and boring i mean i know it's horrible to say horrible i hate that word boring because i i'd like to think i don't have a a mind that is that can get bored you know i don't like to use that word boring but and i wouldn't normally say it i all i'm only using it in this way to say that it was it felt that way this time where it used to not feel that way and i don't know what the reason was for it see i don't find it boring at all i've seen it more times than you, Sasha. I've seen it a lot of times, and it just keeps. For me, it just keeps getting better and better. It's just it to me. It holds up. It holds up very well. You know, I, it's, it's because of um, it's a great ensemble cast. One of the, one of the best that year. You had great actors. You had Kevin Spacey, um, Russell Crowe, who people didn't know who Russell Crowe was, and um, I'm forgetting the other actor. Um, Pierce. Um, Pierce. You know, like yeah, no one knew who he yeah, was either. You had two Australian actors who who were playing American cops, you know, with American accents and stuff like that. I mean, it just it takes you to that time, and you just kind of. For me, it's nostalgic because I grew up in Los Angeles, so I, I knew all the little places that they were filming and stuff like that. Um, seeing the um, Formosa restaurant, restaurant and stuff like that, and then seeing that that, that he's at the um, he's in front of the um, Kevin Spacey's character is at that um, um, cocktail bar that's right next door to the um, Pantages Theater. I mean, it just for me, it's a very nostalgic film, but it's just it's it's such a great film, and it's, a, it, 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 it's just um, a, a wonderful work of film noir, and it, it does rival Chinatown, even though Chinatown is a much better film, but it's on the same scale, and for me, it holds up, and I don't find it boring at all. Yeah, I don't know why. The Chinatown for me was like, uh, it has such layers of story and character, and I love to dive into those characters. I felt that in this one, like Kim Basinger, who won, I think Julianne Moore should have won for Boogie Nights. Uh, I like Kim Basinger. I'm glad, you know, she's, she plays an interesting character, but there's not much to that character. She just kind of loves what's-his-name, you know, and that's it. And, you know, she's looked like Veronica Lake. She's vulnerable. He hits her, you know. I'm Officer White. I've been expecting you. Just not this soon. Pierce called. He told me what happened to Sue. Everything all right, doll? Want me to get rid of him? Hit the road, pal. <laughs> Maybe I will. Maybe I won't. The late PD shit, Bert. Get the fuck out of here or I'll call your wife to come get you. Sue Lefferts, but we weren't friends. You know what I mean? Sorry she's dead. 
course I am. What kind of question is that? Do you know why Pierce is humoring you? Use words like that, you might make me mad. But do you know? Yeah, I know. Patchett's running whores. Cut to look like movie stars. Judging by his address, probably something bigger on the side. He doesn't want any attention. That's right. Our motives are selfish. So we're cooperating. So cooperate, Miss Bracken. Why was Susan Lefferts at the Night Owl? I don't know. I never heard of the Night Owl till today. How did she meet Patchett? Pierce meets people. Sue came on a bus with dreams of Hollywood, and this is how they turned out. Thanks to Pierce, we still get to act a little. Tell me about Pierce. He's waiting for you to mention money. You want some advice, Miss Bracken? It's Lynn. Miss Bracken, don't ever try to fucking bribe me or threaten me, or I'll have you and Patchett and shit up to your ears. I remember you from Christmas Eve. You have a thing for helping women, don't you, Officer White? Maybe I'm just fucking curious. You say fuck a lot. You fuck for money. There's blood on your shirt. Is that an integral part of your job? Yeah. Do you enjoy it? When they deserve it. Did they deserve it today? I'm not sure. But you did it anyway. Yeah. Just like the half dozen guys you screwed today. <laughs> well, actually, it was only two. You're different, Officer White. You're the first man in five years who didn't tell me I look like Veronica Lake inside of a minute. You look better than Veronica Lake. Pierce Patchett. He takes a cut of our earnings and invests it for us. Doesn't let us use narcotics and he doesn't abuse us. Can your policeman's mentality grasp those contradictions? He had you cut to look like Veronica Lake. No. I'm really a brunette. But the rest is me. And that's all the news that's fit to print. It's nice meeting you, officer. I'd like to see you again. Are you asking me for a date or an appointment? I don't know. If you're asking me for a date, I should know your first Forget name. Forget I asked. Was a mistake. I just, I found myself kind of suffocating under the sausage fest of it all, you know? You're right about that. Yeah, I had never thought of it from that point of view. As far as Chinatown goes, Chinatown is really well balanced between the male and female leads. Yeah. And, and absolutely... Um, the LA Confidential is not. It does not even have a female lead. That's why she was nominated for Best Supporting Actress yeah. um, in one. But uh, it's absolutely a guys movie, and just stick with guys. And, there's, and the only women you see are victims and and girls who fall in love with the guys. And I know that that is is not a good thing. Well, but, I mean, it's a fine thing. It tells the story. Okay, it's just for yeah. me personally. I guess maybe I was driven by my physical attraction to Russell Crowe when I first saw it, and, and that seems to have faded a little bit. I don't know why, but um, but he was so cute when I first saw him, and, you know, that was before we knew anything about him. <laughs> well, there you go. He was cuter then. <laughs> yeah, but he was Your also... love for him has faded as he has gotten more and more punchy. <laughs> well, we know so much about him now, you know. We know what he's like, and so yeah. watching him mm -hmm. be that kind of 
rabble rouser, tough guy. It, it doesn't have the same. You don't. You're not walking in fresh with the character. You're looking at Russell Crowe, who you know too much about now. You know, mm-hmm. and that takes me out of it. I thought Kevin Spacey of all of them stood out the most as the best performer. But but Michael is right in in what he said about the, how how really daring and groundbreaking that was to to cast uh, unknown actors from Australia in your in a in the in both lead roles and even Kevin Spacey was not that well known he'd only been around for about a couple of years you know and no one really had a had an idea of his persona yet but the reason you do that and the reason Curtis Hansen did that is so you wouldn't have any preconceived notions about who these guys were so you wouldn't judge them as if yeah I know what kind of what kind of guy he's going to be playing because he always plays that kind of guy you had no idea what what the morals of these guys were because you never had any exposure to them before and i thought that in itself was just a brilliant stroke yeah and when sasha said about you know there was no strong female lead and there was um and kim kim played more of a supporting lead if you kind of watch a lot of 50s film noir um a lot of the women were victims there were not that many strong... Those films were driven by men. A lot of those film noirs were driven by men, and very few films had very strong female leads. They were always sort of like the damsel in distress, or the... Um, well, they were the femme fatale, the ones who the were always... Dra- they, they were drawing the hero into trouble, and they were the, the, his downfall. And, right, because... Um, yeah, and so Kim Basinger turned that up, um, upside down because she was not that type of character. Right, even though in, she kind of comes off as a film film fatal in the beginning when she walks into the um, the liquor store and she puts it and she's on the counter and she's tapping her fingers on the counter with her gloves and, she, and she's wearing that um, hoodie long um, cape. I mean, she comes in like a film fatal, but she's not. You know, she's just a uh, she's a good girl at the wrong place at the wrong time in her situation. Yeah, I know. And it was all interesting back then. It just wasn't that interesting now, you know? I don't know why. I can't really place it. <laughs> but... Sorry, I mean, I, that's I don't okay. No, it's all right. You have to be sorry, but I mean, uh, I didn't apologize for saying that Titanic exactly. hasn't aged well for me go. either. You know? <laughs> well, also, Sasha said that um, you know um, she thought Julianne Moore should have won, and I and I was talking to Sasha about this, and I was telling her that the only reason why probably Julianne did not win because Kim Bassinger was more well known. Everyone knew who she was. Kim, Julianne, no one knew who Julianne Moore was. She was coming. Um, into her own, so I think Kim Basinger had to win. She had no choice to win. Yeah, no, she, I totally. Everybody knew who she, who she was. Yeah. She was more more famous than Julianne Moore was. Oh, I know. Believe me, I know. I know why she won. It's fine. I totally get it. I'm not saying it's a terrible tragedy that she won. Good for her, you know. But um, I'm just saying that for me, I don't know what it was about LA Confidential. Why I couldn't? I mean, I kind of agree with Craig. I wish I'd liked it more. I wish it did feel like Chinatown to me more, but it didn't quite. Um, it doesn't have like the 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 story itself about the crooked cops and stuff isn't as deep as the story of the weird like incest guy and and but to me the incest was. thing was almost in in Chinatown although I know that's a big that was the whole um, dr- driving 
force that was the the the, pro, the at the at the soul at the heart of of uh, Faye Dunaway's character's problem. That was that was her that was her issue. That was almost like a MacGuffin, really. That doesn't the the movie doesn't hinge on that as much as the corruption does. The, and that's what Chinatown. When I think of the plot of Chinatown, it's about L.A. corruption, and that's what I think about sure, when I think about L.A. confidential too. The, it's about L.A. A, corruption. They teach a class at NYU just on Chinatown screenplay, and mm-hmm. the thing about it is that 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 whole thing with him with Noah Cross and his incest and stuff, it's all symbolic to the whole plot of Chinatown, which is about water, which is about the life source. You know, it, it does all play in. It's not just this, like, weird thing. It's 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 actually part of the overriding theme of the movie. Uh, about I, understand the, the, I understand the paternalism part of it. And, and, and fact, the, 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 the patriarchy, I think, definitely. I think the I understand corruption that part is actually it. the MacGuffin. The corruption mm-hmm. was the MacGuffin in, in Chinatown. And it revealed a deeper, more sinister story underneath what he was really about with, um, with uh, uh, what's it called? The, uh, the opposite is true. That there was no, there was a corrupt story that eventually revealed the, you know, the corruption in L.A. You know, I mean, the, the mm-hmm. weird story eventually upended the corruption in L.A., but there wasn't anything deeper beyond that. That's all. To me, see, I think the corruption of L.A. is is deeper than the corruption between a, a father and incest. That, to me, a, a citywide corruption is deeper, is a, is a larger question and a larger issue for me than a, than a personal incest issue. But it wasn't well, the, just a personal incest issue. That was just the symbol for what the whole movie represented and what Noah Cross represented and what he, Robert Town was saying about humanity. It wasn't just that specific story it was supposed mm-hmm. to be taken in broad in broader terms there's no doubt that chinatown is my one of my five favorite movies of all time and nothing can compare to chinatown i'm saying that la confidential is the only movie in the in 20 years that came along that even reminded me of chinatown mm-hmm. and i really appreciate the way that they that it played off that it almost plays off of it and i like the fact that it dealt with with a with a 20 years later the la is still corrupt i really like that thing about it and i and it didn't matter to me there was plenty of personal um um it, there were plenty of personal issues in in, in la confidential that got to me I, I thought that that kim basinger's story was was really interesting i thought it was really fascinating that she had this this uh house set up that was like a love nest that was meant to be like a stage set but she had her little room where she was a little girl the replica of her little hometown small town room i mean that's really touching to me and all the all the love story was is just as meaningful to me in la confidential as it was to me in chinatown i'm just sick of seeing women be fuck machines in movies you know what i mean it's Mm. like it's just gets boring after a while and i think at the time we didn't live in the time we live in now there were more diverse Mm. female roles there were lots of depictions there were lots of roles for women things weren't as dried up as they are now i think that might be the difference so seeing it through the, the lens of today it just feels like oh really god that's jennifer lawrence and silver linings playbook again you know it's the same thing it's the same woman the fuck machine you know it's like i just want to see something else so i think that colored my impression of it now as opposed to then mm-hmm. yeah. you know her character just reminded me of those um actresses um in yesteryear who played prostitutes but they were the prostitute with the heart of gold that I'm was just gonna say yeah i'm just gonna say you're talking about fuck machines and we're talking about julianne moore winning the oscar over over kim basinger i mean i agree with her. i would rather have seen julianne moore win the oscar that year but talk about a fuck machine she was a more interesting character though she was a flawed character and a damaged character, and uh, oh, see, I thought I, I a thought tragic Kim character. I thought Kim Basinger's character was also just as tragic. 
to me. She, I mean, she, she's tragic, but she's still the fuck machine. She's still the girl that everybody wants. She still rides off with the guy in the end and has a happy but, ending. You know, but that's not the girl she wanted to be. If you if you really listen to her talk about her hometown and stuff like that, she doesn't want to be the girl that she's in. L.A. She wants to just make enough money where she can go back to her home, to her small town. No, I know. My mm-hmm. point is just that she's not given. She's not given the the you know um, the room to be a tragic hero because she's she has to be the desired one. She has to be the sex pot of the movie, and it works for that. And Academy members love that kind of thing. You know, that's how you win an Oscar. Um, I'm just saying. I'm not saying it's bad or it's insulting or it's anything. I'm just saying it was less interesting to me. That's all. all less interesting mm-hmm. than it than it was back in 1997 when I really really loved the movie. Yeah, another thing for me too, and I I, I know that I it, this is just specific to me, but I I really lo- I had read the novel and I loved the novel so much before I saw the movie, and so I was I probably already the first from the first time I saw it I was reading more into the characters than maybe other people see when they if they only know the movie. But right. I think that James Elroy's novel is is absolutely incredible. It's one of my favorite novels of all sure. time. If you've read the novel, I'm sure you love the movie more. I have never read yeah. the novel, and I bet if I did, I'd, I'd like it. And it, when I read it, it seemed to me like something that would probably never even be possible to, to film it. It's so complex, and it's so dark, and it's so absolutely convoluted and, and, and uh, tangled. I didn't know how they could ever make it into a movie. I was really skeptical that, that it could ever be a movie. So when you see a movie that turns out to be... So that does it so well. I mean, I was just really, uh, I was um, so relieved in a way. And so part of that relief has spilled over for the past 30 years and and, and has helped me maintain respect for the movie. So, Ryan, if you read the book, were there any, was there like a difference from the film? Like were there characters that were Oh, yeah, just all kinds of differences. Just in a myriad of differences. It's impossible, hard to even go into them all. Mm. It, the, the movie had to be really simplified a lot from the book. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, okay, that's great, though. I mean, I, I think it's great that, that it's still, for you guys, it's still held up so well, you know? I really do. I think it's... Um, it's a very well-made film, incredibly well-written. I just, I wish that I had been able to connect to it a little bit better. Maybe I'll have to watch it again to, to see if I, you know, if I can find that that thing I liked about it before. I enjoy Titanic every time I see it. I just want to say, I know we're not supposed to keep going back to Titanic. I'm not ragging on Titanic, and I'm not sorry that it won the Oscars. I'm not, I'm not sorry that it won 11 Oscars. I'm just saying that my favorite movie of the year is L.A. Confidential, yeah, no, and, 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 and there's no comparison really I, as I, far as the quality of films for me. I don't want you to think that I'm sitting here going, Titanic's so much better than L.A. Confidential. That's not why I like it. Because it's not, Titanic's not even my, you know, close to my favorite movie of the year. I, I think it deserved to win the Oscar, but... You know, I agree with you on everything you've said about it. You know, I'm it's not sure even the best James Cameron movie. Yeah, I mean, whatever. What are the Oscars? You know, the Oscars are a joke. You know, you do we get... want to do that? Do we want to talk about what our three favorite movies of the year are? Do we want to save that till the end of the podcast? Or well, I just or... don't want you to think that it's a Titanic versus L.A. Confidential because it's really for me, it's not. They're two separate okay. issues, totally. You know, um, even though it seems like it was that there was also one more film pushing through that year and that was as good as it gets which was the the third movie um of the three that that was pushing through the oscar race and really really strong and both as good as it gets and titanic were incredible incredibly emotional films that people really identified with and that's why as good as it get ended up winning um both lead acting and um, LA Confidential took supporting and screenplay, and then Titanic took the lion's share. But they really did, 
the the race was really split into those three films. People think of it like it's L.A. Confidential versus Titanic, but really mm-hmm. L.A. Confidential never had a chance to beat Titanic because it, it's so... I mean, if you watch it now, this is us. Like, flashback to us that year, and we were, we were all going on and on about how L.A. Confidential has won all these critics' awards. It's like the social network of that year, right? And it's the last thing you want to hear is that it's, it's, it can't win because it's not emotional enough. But if you watch it now, after all these years, and you watch those other two movies, you can see very plainly and clearly which one was more emotionally affecting to a general audience than L.A. Confidential wasn't that movie. But those other two certainly were. And the two wear their hearts on their sleeves. They're much more easier to grasp. Unless we forget Goodwill Hunting, which is also another one that, that pulled the heartstrings and also won screenplay and supporting actor, right? Mm-hmm. So you um, know, it's interesting that 1997 is, is rare, but all the films that were nominated for Best Picture all walked off with Oscars. Yeah, everybody and that got, is everybody rare. got something. Yeah, everyone got something. And that's kind of rare for a year for Oscars. That yeah. doesn't happen. Usually one movie gets shafted with no Oscar wins. But that and it is a shame. I mean, even though if we're going to be, if we do want have to, and we have to, in a way, talk about Alec Confidential and Titanic together, um, Gloria Stewart was the best thing about Titanic as far as the acting goes, I think. Really? Oh. I thought she was the worst. No kidding, really? Yeah. yeah. Well, I loved her yeah, so much. Terrible. Yeah, I didn't oh. think she was all that at all. You know, I I I have to agree she wasn't the best at all. Hmm. Yeah. But you know, it's, it's corny. Oh, I don't want to talk about that anymore. No, no, no more Titanic. Um, the thing is, is um, you know who should have won supporting actor that year? I'm sorry to say, didn't was Greg Kinnear in As Good as It Gets. He was so good in that part. He's so good in that movie. He's the best thing about it. And he didn't win, which is shocking to me that. That the they gave it instead to Robin Williams for Goodwill Hunting. I know he's Robin Williams. I know you can't pass him up. Um, I can't stand Robin Williams in that movie, but I really don't. I can't understand why, for instance, that um, who's in Be- My Best Friend's Wedding? Rupert Everett. Rupert. Rupert. Everett. Why wasn't Why wasn't he even nominated? And why didn't he win Best Supporting Actor? If you're going to have a gay character, why not have a gay character who's not a victim? Why not have a gay character who is comfortable with himself? You know, who's he happy is, with his he life. He is comfortable and with himself in that movie. You don't think he is? Mm, I didn't like his character. I don't really like. I don't really like that they threw him in as as almost like a token. I, I, for one thing, there's nothing gay about him except for the fact that he says he's gay. He says he's gay, and so okay, so you're gay, but you don't. We get, don't get to see anything that's gay about him. He doesn't seem gay to me. Well, anything I'm going to say is going to sound bigoted, so I can't say why mm. I think he's gay. No, go ahead, I mean, please. I mean, well, it don't sound bigoted. I mean, I'm sure, and he's yeah. got a, you know, he's he likes the young man that he's painting. I mean, you know, why why if he had been flaming, boy, would he have gotten reamed for that? No, I don't mean that. I'm mean flaming. I just be seeing you never you never get to see him in a. I know that he, you see his painting and you see relationships that have that are over for him, but that's what makes him. He's a, he's one of the sad gay people who has a sad life. Who's not? He's not with anyone. But why can't he just be a character? Why does he have to? be? Yeah, I, I, he can be. Obviously, he can be. I mean, it's not as if Rupert Everett had had a boyfriend either. And but I just felt like that he was more of a better role model for gay people in in my best friend's wedding than than I found in Greg Kinnear. It really, when I saw that movie, it really annoyed me that they decided to have a gay character who was so unrecognizably as anything that I of anyone that I ever knew who was gay. Now was he out at the time? Rupert Everett when this movie came uh, out? Yeah, 
He was. He was. He was. He was. Yeah. 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 See, I think of that, and I don't know, because I'm obviously not a gay man, but to me, Rupert Everett in that movie is a very stereotypical fag, you know, fag hag type, you know, that quote-unquote. I don't mean that in a literal sense. But no, I, mean, I know. He's, well, general, what you mean is he's, he's, he's your gay best friend. He's your gay best friend who's always yeah, the gay uh, guy who's always, but, you know, See, yeah, but I know guys like love that. Your shoes, I know, love I know, your shoes, I know hundreds of guys like that. I don't know any gay person like Greg Kinnear who's just a, 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 a whiny, wimpy guy. God, I know a lot of gay people like Greg Kinnear a lot <laughs> who are you know well, you see Greg Kinnear and me to me did not come off as gay in the movie that's what Ryan's saying see yeah, yeah and gay. I agree with that because to me he doesn't come off as being gay he comes off as somebody who says he's gay but there's no evidence to me that he is gay except for that one instant before he gets beat up that he invites that guy over because there's supposed to be like something happening but other than that he comes off as he's like the straightest gay guy in that film. Well, that was because that was the era where it was uncool to not act like a straight guy if you were playing a gay guy because you got so much shit if you acted gay, you know? I don't need for him to be flamboyant. I just need for him to, to, to I just need for him not to be beat up by someone who he's trying, who he's, you know, who he's invited up to his apartment. I need for him not to be a, the kind of gay guy who's in trouble for being gay, who has to pay a price and be, and be, and be beat up because he's gay. But that's the whole movie. It's three misfits for one reason or another. In this case, it's because it's the he, he's been traumatized, feeling like an outsider, and that makes him who he is. And, and she's got her problems, and he's got his problems, and that's the whole point that they all sort of form a team. But I, I, I don't. I don't like any of them. See, I didn't like Jack Nicholson. I don't like her either. I didn't like anybody in that movie. I don't like that movie. But I do understand Ryan's point of view. It's like, why does he have to be beat up? Why couldn't it have been like another type of scenario um, for us to feel for him? You know, that's the kind of that's the kind of gay guys that Hollywood's comfortable with. Yeah, you know, that's, they, the guy, that's the kind of guy they're going to nominate for an Oscar. The ones who get themselves in trouble by chasing dick. Actually, right. that isn't true, yeah. Ryan. I hate to be arguing mm. with you about this. That's it's okay, but to not be I, the gay guy just, arguing, but I have to stand up for him. At the time, that was not what people were saying. At the time, everybody was was saying that it was the opposite was true. That for once there was a, a gay character that was seemed like an actual human being, who had flaws. You know, who was allowed to have flaws. He gets beat up not because he's gay. He gets beat up because they want his money. You know, he gets robbed. He doesn't get gay bashed. And the thing is, is um. As he is he's an actual character who's not a gay guy looking for love he's, he's not wrapped up in romance he's he's trying to pull his life together he's trying to find out what his life means it just so happens he's gay you know isn't that what it you know isn't that what it's all about i mean god if any woman any woman character in a film ever got the luxury to be that you know, without it being, if she got peed up, if she had to go confront her parents, if she had to uncover the awkward sexual encounter she, she had, you know, with a parent early on and it stopped her from being able to paint. If she was a painter who finally got inspired one night by the sight of a body and then she painted all night and her, her artistic, you know, spirit was back. If she could be a fucking artist, if she could just be an artist instead of a woman. I mean, how great would that be? He gets to be an artist it's the most important thing about him that he's gay is just a side effect of that. It was just a side quality about him. You know, it's not his whole identity. He's an actual fully fleshed out human being. That is so rare in any movie about any minority. That's the only thing that the straight guy gets to be is that. And here's a movie that has a character who has so much color about him. You know, and so much to his care. He's so deep. We know we find out so much. We know everything about his life by the end of that movie. 
It's just a beautiful thing. I'm glad you like him. I can't stand him. <laughs> Sorry, I mean you make you make a good case, but I don't like the character, and I don't like the fact that he that he the reason he's beat up is not just because they wanted his money. He's beat up because he invites the wrong person up to his because he has no he has bad judgment about who he invites up to his apartment. And yeah. he invites someone up to his apartment who, who he's attracted to, and he ends up getting beat up by that person. He has bad judgment. So does a lot of people. So do a lot of people. You know. So he, he's, he's he's paying the price for 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 wanting to have wanting to suck somebody's dick who only wants his money. He's he doesn't though. He he makes the point of not of not. Um, get, he he doesn't ever try to get sexual yeah. with him. He just wants to draw him because he's beautiful. He wants to to paint him. It's the, it's the guy who assumes that he's being brought up there for sex, but that never happens. He I just mean, draw, he just paints him. Yeah. Then why make the character gay then? Because that's the character. Why not make him gay? I mean, if he's not... Why make her a single mom? The reason you have to make him... Here's why you make him gay. Because because, uh, Jack Nicholson needed one more prejudice that he had to have. He was racist, he was homophobic, and he was misogynist. And so you have to to give him all three of those cards to play so that he can be redeemed unrealistically at the end and and turn into a whole different person, which a 60-year-old man who is racist and homophobic and misogynist 60 years old does not suddenly turn over a new leaf. No, and that's her flaw that she falls for a guy like that. And it's, it's, we were all of us watching it going, why is she interested in that old guy? You know, like he just seemed like an old guy and an asshole. And Emma was actually mad that she gets together with him in the end. I mean, it made Emma mad about that movie. She didn't like it because of that, you know, and, and I can totally relate to that. For me, it was a movie of its time. You know, I'm old enough to remember, as I keep saying, that I lived through it. I remember when it came out. And believe me, it was it was fairly unprecedented on such a massive scale to have a gay, a gay character like that in, in mainstream Hollywood. Now it's pretty, you know, pretty typical that you have a straight guy playing a gay guy and they get nominated for the Oscar. But back then, that was not the case. And it was it was considered pretty pretty much a breakthrough that he was the most interesting character in the movie so yeah maybe that i I was i lived through this too i saw the movie the year that it came out and and i know that i was offended by it i was offended by the character the character the way the character was drawn the way the character the the reason i thought he was in the movie just to give jack nicholson another person to hate at the beginning so he could finally decide that he was finally maybe he was okay after all at the end i found that 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 was just a sort of a tokenism sort of thing and i also dislike the fact that you have a gay character a gay actor playing a gay character who's overlooked entirely by the oscars and you have a straight actor playing a gay character who gets nominated of course because it's like his psychological flaw or something it's like it's like his def- affliction that's what's what how actors always get nominated for playing playing gay characters right, if, if rupert everett had given the kind of performance that greg kinnear had gives in as good as it gets i would agree with you but as it is he phones that shit in he's funny he's great and everything but that was like that was like waking up and taking a shit, that performance for him. That was the easiest thing in the world to phone that in. And he was great. He was funny. The movie's funny. It's very entertaining. It's a light comedy. But if Greg Kinnear had been passed up for that performance, there would have been something really, really tragically wrong with, with the Oscars. That, that is what acting is all about, you know, gay or straight. Looking for my girl, I won the well, well, can she be? Yes, I'm sure, Simon, they did something really off for you to feel this way. But when it comes to your parents or your kid, something will always be off for you unless you set it straight. And maybe this thing happened to you just to give you a chance to do that. Nonsense. 
And you want to know why? Anybody here who's interested in what Melvin has to say, raise their hand. You want to know what happened with my parents? Yes. When I was a no, kid... Wait, wait, wait. I'm going to pull over. Give me my full attention. Well, I always painted. And my, my mother always encouraged it. I mean, she was really sort of... She was sort of fabulous about it, actually. And she used to... You know, I was too young to think that there was anything wrong with it, and she was she was very natural. So she used to pose nude for me. And I always thought, or I guess I assumed, that my father knew about it. This Maybe stuff that. is pointless. Hey, let him finish, please. You like sad stories? You want to hear mine? Stop. Go ahead, really. Please don't let him stop you. Um... One day he walked in and he found us and he just, he started screaming. My father didn't come out of his room for 11 years. He used to hit me on the hands with a yardstick if I made a mistake playing the piano. Huh? Go ahead, Simon. So you said he came in your room and he was yelling? Uh huh. Please, come on. Um, he, he was, um,. Come on. Yeah, I know. I um, he was. I was. I remember. I was defending my mother, and I, I was trying to, uh, you know, make peace in the the lamest way. I said, she, I said she's not naked. It's art. <laughs> and he started hitting me, and he beat me unconscious. And he talked to me less and less after that. I mean, he, you know, he knew what I was before I did. And the morning that I left for college, he walked into my room and he held out his hand and it was filled with money. A big, sweaty wad of money. And he said, I don't want you to ever come back. And I just grabbed him and I hugged him and he turned and walked out. Hey, we all have these terrible stories to get over and you... It's not true. Some of us have great stories, pretty stories that take place at lakes with boats and friends and noodle salad. Just no one in this car, but a lot of people, that's their story. Good times, noodle salad. What makes it so hard is not that you had it bad, but that you're that pissed that so many others had it good. No, I don't think so. Not it at all, really. Not it at all, huh? I mean, I can't... I totally validate and understand what you're saying about his his place in 
the politics of Hollywood and the politics of Oscar. And I'm not gay, so I don't know what mm. it would be like to be offended by that. I know that I am offended by 90% of the movies that come out because women are treated like shit in all of that. Yeah, and like fuck machines. I mean, you we just we talked about how you don't like movies where the, all the women do are just their sex objects. And I don't like but movies not. where the gay guys are always being victimized. He's not victimized, though. He totally takes control of his life and of his situation eventually. Um, you know, he, he has a, a full spectrum of human emotions he goes through in that movie. I mean, I just watched it the other day and I was, I need to watch it again then. Cause I, I, I maybe I'll have a different impression because I've changed over the years. It's been years and years since I've seen it. I never wanted to see that movie again. I just really disliked it when I saw it. I couldn't understand, like, as you say, why anybody would even bother with Jack Nicholson's character in the first place. He's an asshole. He's a 60 year old asshole. He's not going to change. Why well, bother with the fuckhead, you know? Well, that, it, I don't know about, I mean, I don't know if that works. Yeah, that's, anymore well, i don't know because it didn't work for me this time i just kept thinking she's too young for him she's too young the mother would have been a better match for him but <laughs> but the but the characters as written if you if you cast a younger man in his, in his part or you cast an older person in her part i mean they're they're the kind of characters you just don't see in movies these days they just don't get written you know i mean yeah well for me with the film and sasha knows this i i just didn't i don't know what any woman would fall for Jack Nicholson's character. He it was he was the worst person. He, he why would anyone fall for a guy like him? He 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 hated everything. I mean, he he didn't even like himself pretty much. You know, he and why would this girl, I don't know any woman that would fall for a guy like that. Well, I'm one of those all. women. <laughs> the thing is, is, is you. What happens with women is they get into a protection mode. They see vulnerability in an asshole, and they want to take care of them, and they want to be their salvation, and they want to fix them. You know, and that's what's going on there. And also, he does her an enormous favor when he gets her health care for her son. So on the one hand, he's buying her, but on the other hand, he loves her so much. Underneath all the assholishness, he loves her. That she finds, she's finally moved by that. She's moved by how much a one guy can love her, despite but, the fact that he's got all these problems. But also, he's not going to change. He's always going to be that person because he has an illness. He's always going to be that 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 asshole person. Well, so someday there'll be Edith you know. and Archie Bunker. You know, there'll be that couple. You know, so we don't know what. So we don't know after the film ends what's going to happen. But you kind of get a a big picture that she's probably not going to hang out with him much longer. You know, that's, I'm, that's my impression. I hope you know? you're right. I didn't get that impression, <laughs> but I mean, I like to think that you're, you're correct about that. That, that right after the movie that. ends that she drops him. She doesn't though. You know, <laughs> because what, together who would want to she stay? can do better. Yeah, she can do much better. Okay. So he um, paid for her kids medical thing. That was a great thing came out of his heart, but also, I mean, it took him, he had to be a dick for him to do that first. You know, he was a dick to her first. I think and he does say something that upsets her about her son. Because I think he, I think he thinks, is he a retard? He says something, and then she gets offended by it. You know, but it took her, like, almost halfway through the film to realize that she liked the guy. And she well, could feel something for him. But I just don't think there's any woman alive that would even want to be entertain the idea of wanting to be with a guy like that. 
Well, one of all. the things one of the things about that movie, as good as it gets, is that it was just coming in as political correctness was really, really taking hold. Nowadays, we've become so politically correct, and it's so people are watched so carefully on Twitter for everything they do and say that that movie would have gotten. Can you guys imagine if as good as it gets had come out now, and what Twitter would have done with that? How offended people would have gotten? Everything about it would have been offensive, even though the whole point of it is that he's this politically incorrect person. I think one of the things about it is that a lot of older men feel find comfort and identify with a guy like that, just like they did with Archie Bunker, just like they do with Don Draper, just like they do with Walter White. I think that that male psyche and Jeff Wells, that male psyche feels comforted because deep down, many of them really think that way and want to talk that way and feel imprisoned by the way that things have become, or Larry David is another example, you know, and he, to me at that time, tapped into that psyche, that male psyche that was, that is still, you know, that's why he's the hero of the movie. That's why it worked because people all secretly, secretly, I think, feel freedom, feel freed up when they hear someone talking like that. But Sasha, no one wants to be an asshole though. And no, I mean, he was an I, asshole. I, I see what you're saying, Sasha, that it plays into the psyche of men who, who can identify with a character like that and who, who, can, who can feel like that, that he's speaking to some part of them that they have to exactly. keep under wraps. But that doesn't speak to me. No, that I know it doesn't. speak to me, and that's why it never spoke either. to me at the time, and I'm why I'm afraid if I saw it again. You're right. It would probably seem, because I can remember now, now that I think about it more, the, the really um, ugly things that Jack Nicholson said to Greg Kinnear you know, I, I don't. I didn't appreciate that at the time, and I would appreciate it even less now. Right, because I know. Of, and that's, that's I never saw that he made up for it. That's I not going to change. He, he doesn't make up for it particularly. You're just supposed to be charmed by him because he's Jack Nicholson. I just think it's funny watching the movie uh, how different things are now because it wouldn't fly today at all. And, uh, you know, it's just when you watch it, you'll see what I'm talking about. Like, it was <laughs> accepted at the time, but nowadays, no way. Yeah, because people were charmed by Jack Nicholson, you know, and so that's why he won. But if you really dwell into this character, he's very disliked. He's a disliked character. And it's a disliked character that shouldn't have even won the Oscar. But but, but because it was Jack Nicholson in the persona of this character, that's why he won the Oscar. I know, but we, he would never have won today. He would No, he wouldn't have won today because he's not a liked character he, at all. You hate this guy throughout the entire film. Okay. Even but, it, yes, that's true. But I love. We're going to move on now. But I love. Um, you know who, I love Helen Hunt and I love Greg Kinnear. And and let's move on to a different movie. I, I love Helen Hunt too. I, you know, I didn't have any idea who she was. She was a totally unknown person to me. I'd never heard of Mad About You. I never saw a single episode of that show. So I didn't know where she had come from. But she blew me away. I really did like her in that movie a lot. Who should have won Best Actor that year? Uh, can we talk? Just mention Yulee's Gold and Peter Fonda. Sure. I mean, I, I love that movie so much, and I really, I think that probably because it was such an, a, a low-budget indie film and it was so low-key that it was overlooked. But I mean, probably uh, it, it's definitely his greatest performance of his career, Peter Fonda's career, and I, I really, really like that movie a lot. Yulee's Gold, probably it would be my third favorite movie of the year, probably. <laughs> is, is anybody there? <laughs> Dead silence. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, I, it is. It was not competition that you know Jack Nicholson would have beat 
him easily because it's such a subtle performance, you know, and the only mm-hmm. thing that would have gotten Peter Fonda the win was love for Peter Fonda or love for the Fonda family, you know, um, that's why it was so easy for Jack to win. I remember how annoying it was to watch him win that night, but it just, because it was like, does Jack Nicholson really need another Oscar? You know, well, the, well, the, well, the beautiful thing about the Oscars that when he won, he did pay homage to Peter Fonda because they're friends. You know, and, I, and deep down, he actually wanted Peter Fonda to win. Oh, I'm sure he didn't. Act, you know? He didn't care that he got the. I mean, I'm not saying he's a bad guy. I love Jack Nicholson. I'm just saying that, that yeah, he would have loved to have win. But the, the voters, there's, there wasn't a strong enough performance. It wasn't a strong. So those they didn't have the performance to go on. They had to go on love for him. And well, a lot of people don't really know nor love. Peter Fonda the way that they love Henry Fonda or, or Jane Fonda. And maybe Peter Fonda's a little cold, you know? Well, he burned a lot of bit bridges back in the 60s, like Peter um, Fonda. So, you know, and, I mean, if he had won, it probably would have been because on the strength of Henry Fonda and Jane Fonda. Right. You know? So it there would have been... Gr- no, go ahead. I'm sorry. There was no sense that Peter, Va- Peter Fonda was overdue for an Oscar. He had never shown what he could do before that, that he showed that he could do in, in New Year's Gold. It was like a out of the blue that he yeah. turned into performance. Meanwhile, Jack Nicholson had been passed over half a dozen times for Best Actor when he should have won in the past, right? Right, right. right. Yeah, absolutely. I uh, know. I remember Peter Fonda. It was a. It was talked about as being the obligation vote. You know, they don't like voters. Never like that. They never like when people say like Lauren Bacall or whatever, like you should vote for someone because they're overdue. They totally vote for the performance almost always, you know? Um, mm-hmm. Well, he did win the Golden Globe, so that was sort of like a consolation prize. So he did do, he did win that. Peter Fonda did? Yeah, he won the gold, yeah, he won the Golden Globe. Mm-hmm. They just wanted That's to see good. Jack Nicholson get on stage at the Oscars. <laughs> well, Jack Nicholson is the sort of the male version of Meryl Streep, you know, in a sense. Yeah. Peter Fonda won the New York Film Critics Award for Ulysses Gold too that year. Yeah. They're just never the Oscars are never going to be that. They're never. They're going to do that. that. Yeah, I know because the movie was too small. Probably a lot of the uh, Academy members did never even saw it. All right, two hour mark. Two hour mark. Just so you know, a lot <laughs> oh of stuff is going to get cut out. It's, and so. we didn't even barely mention Boogie Nights. We had hardly talked about just mentioned the name Ice, the Ice Storm. I know. I'm trying was, to mm-hmm. move things along, but okay. So uh, the, the another movie. I don't know. Did the Sweet Hereafter get nominated for any Oscars at all? Nothing. That's the thing. Yeah, it was got nominated for Best Director. What are you talking about? Oh, Best Director. Oh, did it? Oh my God. Yeah. And screenplay too. Okay, okay, so Sweet Hereafter was really critically acclaimed. Directed by Atama Goyan uh, from Canada. I think it's a Canadian production. It features a very beautiful, wonderful young Sarah Polly, who this year is up for, maybe up for Best Documentary, probably will be nominated for Stories We Tell, the, her, her life story. So she's gone from, you know, this wide-eyed, really brilliant performance, should have been nominated in Sweet Hereafter, to filmmaker. Sweet Hereafter is about um, Ian Holm plays a lawyer who comes to this small town that has just been you know, rocked to its core by all of its school children being in a bus which goes over the cliff and, and onto a frozen ice pond and sinks, killing most of the children. And he's in town to generate a lawsuit, basically to sue somebody, to make somebody pay, to make reparations so that, you know, uh, the families can, can earn some money from their dead children. And 
really sad, hardcore, beautifully written. I mean, the thing about The Sweet Hereafter is it totally holds up. It doesn't feel dated at all. You'd never know it was filmed in 1997. It could have been any year. Great performances throughout. Brilliant script. Certainly, if it had come out today, it would have been one of the Best Picture nominees. It just needed it needed advocacy. Uh, great film. I think it's a victory that it was nominated for anything at all. I mean, I say that as a, as a huge fan of the film. But it's just not the kind of movie that's going to get a lot of traction because it's small. Um, but Ian Holm was definitely my... Whom, whom I would have picked for best actor that year. Um, a guy who is always great, but here he has a chance to star in the entire film and, and kind of carry it to a large extent. Um, even though it's it's an ensemble piece too, but he's he's a huge standout and he he's just fantastic. Yeah, I saw the film for the first time on Sunday, and um, I never heard of it until I, I, I forgot all about it. And then when I saw it, I just loved it. I fell in love with it. It's such a beautiful film. Very great acting. The story is incredible. I mean, it's 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 definitely a um, um, a tearjerker for you. You know, you just um, it just tugs at you, and and it's just like the inner layers of the film was just amazing. And so I just definitely mm-hmm. you know. If I didn't have a favorite film that year, I mean, I did, but this film would definitely be one of my favorites. Yeah. For sure. That's great. I agree with Craig. It's amazing that it got, that it got nominated for anything at all. I was, in my mind, it, it didn't. I couldn't even remember that it had been nominated when I saw it. Uh, that's not the kind of movie that would come to Thailand at all. It would never even show up there. But we could find all kinds of movies on the street, and you couldn't. And they were they were really good copies. They were really good VHS copies. But you would get them. They would be on recordable VHS, and they wouldn't even be in the original box or anything. So you buy a movie just based on the picture that's pasted on the front. And wh- for years I, after I saw this movie, I thought it was a true story. That's how real it felt to me. I thought it must have had to surely been based on a true story. It was inspired I, by events that happened in. Texas, but they it was just inspired it wasn't it didn't attempt to follow the actual story but the idea of a mm-hmm. of a tragedy that took a bunch of kids mm-hmm. in a small town and a lawyer that comes in to to make somebody pay it was drawn from reality yeah. but it's a great thing to go into a movie and not know anything about it not even what you would read on the back of a dvd box or even anything at all all you have to go on is just the title and a picture and to go into a movie cold like that and to discover something that's so wonderful that's something that i i kind of miss about that you just can't get anymore these days it's hard to do. I always try, but it's hard. You know, um, the film didn't do much here with the awards, but in Canada, at the Genie Awards, it swept. I think it, it won, like, Best Picture. Ian Holm won Best best Actor. It won Best Director. I don't know if it won any supporting nods, but um, it swept the Genie Awards up in Canada. Yeah. So. Mm-hmm. It was a big deal here. I mean, people people were really impressed with it. It was sort of the first taste of Atomagoyan that that, uh, audiences here have gotten. He went on to make some pretty interesting movies over the years. None of them quite reached the level of attention that that one did. But didn't he make Exotica after? Yeah, that's a really good movie. He made Chloe a few years ago, which I kept beating the drum on and everybody made fun of and thought was stupid, and it was actually one of the best movies of that year. Yeah, right. Now, I have a... Um, I'm sorry, but I have a question for Craig because you saw the film, right? Mm-hmm. Um, can you explain the ending to me? Um, it just it it uh, I don't know. It's hard to explain. It just the 
it, it just it just loops back and, and, and finishes telling the story of the Pied Piper and and especially the part about how the one survivor um child was the crippled one who was unable to follow um the rest of the kids to their doom and that sort of represents um Sarah's character because she ends up being put in a wheelchair. So this is basically the ending is actually uh, the ending ends with prior to the accident then. Yeah, the ending flashes back to the evening before the accident when she's oh. reading the story to the little kids. Okay, because I, I, I was very confused with the ending, um, but now you explained it. Because I, I wasn't sure if she was dreaming it or she had been cured from being cr- cr- like paralyzed, so I wasn't sure. Well, um, no, it just the, 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 the Pied Piper story is sort of used as a thematic link throughout the whole thing, and so it just loops back at the end to, to let her finish the story. Yeah. Um, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Really no, no, it does. It does. Really good movie. Highly recommend it. Um, let's move on to The Ice Storm, which was Ang Lee's considered a failure, which is so funny because watching it back, I mean, that movie is Mad Men. That is like if you chopped up The Ice Storm and you made it into a, a TV series, you'd pretty much have Mad Men. You know, everything is, is really talk about not pc but it was you know when parents hid everything when parents had affairs when you didn't talk about sex you know when people drank and smoked cigarettes all the time you know and everybody sort of lived a lie it was very um to me i thought this this is a movie that would have been a great like series on hbo or showtime you know the characters are so interesting mm-hmm I'm surprised it didn't do better at the time. I think it was sort of misunderstood. I don't know if people knew what to make of it, but it it holds up really, really, really well. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, good movie, great movie. What were you going to say, based, Ryan? Based on a novel by Rick Moody, who also wrote Garden State, and he's a really prestigious literary foundation. And and Lee did a made some really good choices in his career back then. Um, or was selected on the basis of the fact that of what he had done in in uh, in Hong Kong, um, being been a, being handed these prestige projects like this. I think it's uh, impressive. And when I first saw it, it just blew me away. Yeah. Really. It's. Um, I think the emotional remove of it makes it hard for some people to get absorbed in it because it's. Um, it's everybody's repressing their emotions, and it can be really hard to watch movies like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I find those kind of movies more emotionally involving than the ones that try to push all my buttons, though. Right. No, I agree. I think it's great. I'm just saying I think that's maybe why... In general it, audiences. It, 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 yeah, people, when, when you see, compared to a movie like Titanic that, that's blatantly a button pusher that's easier for people to identify with and to warm up to because it wears its heart on its sleeve, whereas the whole point of the ice storm is that everything's kept under wraps. So no um, Oscars for the ice storm? No nominations? Nothing at all? Nothing. I, don't, I believe it's nothing. Not even production design? Come on. I know, yeah. right? What a bunch of great performances. Joan Allen, Sigourney Weaver, Kevin Kline, all great. And then a really funny, really brilliant, totally pops, uh, Christina Ricci as the uh, kind of messed up but really cute, funny daughter. Um, totally like straight out of Mad Men, that character. <laughs> yeah. Um, and two, and, and um, what's his name? Um, Frodo. Whatever his name is. Frodo and... and uh, Frodo and Spider-Man. Spider-Man. <laughs> Frodo and Spider-Man. <laughs> I just 
Well, and the kid from Jumanji. I just love all the, all the sex. <laughs> I love all the sex stuff, you know, the young kids discovering sex. And I love how the Jumanji kid is in love with Christina Ricci. And, you know, you show me mine. I'll show you yours. I'll show you mine if you show me yours, she says to him. And, and then there's cutie pie Katie Holmes, who looks like a chipmunk. She's so adorable, you know, just appears out of nowhere as the, the girl that Frodo's in love with. It's just that the stories of the kids and the adults, what a wonderful idea to parallel them like that. James Seamus won the uh, Best Screenplay Award at Cannes that year for The Ice Storm, and Sigourney Weaver won Best Supporting Actress at the BAFTA Awards for, for The Ice Storm. Oh, God. So that's good to why. hear. I just don't know why the Americans were so weird about it. Why they just, I guess it's too, it was too uncomfortable. It wasn't too I too think, I th- yeah, I think just really uncomfortable. I think, for instance, they took it, they took it to the premiere in Connecticut, where it was filmed, and people absolutely, they were really shocked and insulted by the movie, that they that their community would be portrayed like that, you know, even though it was a, a, at a remove of, of, of 20 years in the past or something. They were still just, just really offended that they would come to Canaan, New Canaan, Connecticut, and make this movie and make everyone look so cold-hearted. Oh, wow, really? I guess nowadays yeah. with the anti-heroes and stuff, it doesn't stand out as much as it probably did back then like you said when the movies are like titanic and as good as it gets you know how do you break in if you're if you're the ice storm which is boy what a good movie that ang lee i tell you you want to talk about jackie brown yeah you guys talk about i haven't watched it since it came out but i did watch foxy brown which totally is oh yeah Jackie Brown is probably, the, I think, the most mature movie that Tarantino ever made. And after that, he went into he went back to starting to repeat what he had done in 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 his earlier films. And I think he just has gone downhill since then. Jackie Brown, for me, is the pinnacle of Tarantino's career. Mm. I agree, and I think there's I have a theory about that, and there's no way to actually prove it. And he would probably deny it, but I think that the relatively frosty reception that it got um, from critics and Everybody was expecting, you know, another hunt similar to Pulp Fiction, and it's a totally different kind of movie. And like you said, it's his most mature and probably his most heartfelt. Um, I think the fact that it didn't go over so well, I think, I think scared him and caused him to pull back from that. And I think that's why he went on. He went on to make the kinds of kind of stylish. Um, the kinds of movies that he's made that are that are at a more of an emotional remove, but you know, very stylish, where he's where he's kind of showing off and he's kind of playing to his fan base rather than pushing himself as an artist. And I I, I love all of the movies that he's made since, but I think that the that the relative reception of Jackie Brown caused him to step down a little bit. I wish I could find the quote. I had it in a book that I had bookmarked, but now I've lost it. It's saying exactly the same thing you've just said, Greg. I think Tarantino is quoted at the time, the year that Jackie Brown came out, saying that he thought that he had done, he had, as far as doing playing the same games that he had played with uh, Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction, he'd already spent that. He'd already done all of that that he wanted to do, and he wanted to try something um, more different. And when he tried something different and it didn't go over well, he went back to the thing that people liked him for before and he started trying to do things that would satisfy the academy i think that he's it's a really good example of how the academy by overlooking movies that are really better than the movies that they seem to appreciate they can really steer directors and filmmakers in the wrong direction 
Yeah, trying trying to be something that they're, mm-hmm. they're trying so, trying to to so, live up to expectations of them. Yeah, and so now that Tarantino sees that he can make Inglorious Bastards and get eight Oscar nominations, he's going to try to do that again and again right. and again. Right. And so he did that, and so and that's all he wants to do now. And I think it's a shame because, and I believe he's being rewarded for the wrong movies, right. and it encourages him to make the wrong kinds of movies. He, um, you know, Jackie Brown, I mean, uh, what's her name, Pam Greer? Pam Greer read for the uh, role that Rosanna Arquette played in Pulp Fiction. And um, for one reason or another, Tarantino knew she wasn't right for it, but, but told her to, that he had, would keep her in mind. And the same thing happened with Robert Forster. I'll, I'll, I'll want to use you in the future, I, but you're just not right for this movie. It's almost like he wrote this movie with those two in mind. Mm. Or I chose the... Well, he, you know, it was based on a on an Elmore Leonard novel, Rum Punch, and so right. he he might have he might have selected the book though, knowing that those roles that there were roles in that book that he could um, cast the, these people in. Yeah, right. Although oh, they're both totally different than the characters in the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely different. For one thing, of course, Jackie Brown was white in the book. You know, she was yeah. she was a white stewardess. She wasn't black. Another thing I like about Jackie Brown so much is the dialogue. Although it's great dialogue, it's a, mostly Elmore Leonard's dialogue. It's not the same. It's not the typical rhythms that Tarantino usually writes himself. He he tries. I think he's. He, I think he does. It sounds like him a little bit because I believe he tries to write like Elmore Leonard. But right, you know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Um. Also, really want to talk about briefly about Contact because, you know, of all the movies that were out that year, Contact there there were several that that featured really strong female roles, but you know I just find it so strange that Contact was kind of dismissed that year. When I revisited, I find it to be you know sort of hokey, but in the end is is a little weird. But overall, I mean, what an incredible performance by Jodie Foster, and what a what a great story to tell from a you know female scientist point of view. I mean, you just it's just stuff you don't see, but it's funny to watch it now and then having seen Gravity, it's like the two movies can be kind of bookended in a way, um, mm. you know, great. about women in space basically, but but also films that are carried almost entirely on the back of one female character, something you never see anymore. Gravity, I think, has more gravitas than people give it credit for. If you want to dig into it, if you want to go, if you, I, I, might, I, I think it has a lot more meaning than just the actual simple narrative that you see on the screen. I think it's, it's, it can symbolize a lot of things in the same way that contact symbolizes a lot of things about about searching mm. for meaning. You know, right? And 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 uh, I, I'm glad we can finally talk about a movie that we agree on after all the arguments we've had tonight. I know. But I really like Contact a lot too. I really like the story you know is is based on a carl sagan novel yeah and Mm -hmm. it it is about i mean it's a funny little um debate ongoing debate about faith and science you know and Mm -hmm. they keep keep tossing that ball back and forth in a very clever way i thought but how how luxurious to find a a, a female character that has that opportunity (laughs) to sit there and contemplate faith and science and she's Mm -hmm. not she's not a fuck toy she's not a fuck stick she's just a character, you know, right. and and all the the you know Matthew McConaughey supporting and uh, you know it is her journey. I mean, it sounds so corny to say, and movies like that never get made because God forbid the target demographic could never choke something like that down. It's a it's a it's a miracle they can deal with gravity, but mm-hmm. 
but I think it's worth defending that movie, and I, I will because there's defend it. there's so much talk in Contact. You know, it's not a lot of action at all. There's hardly any action until the very end, and even that action is sort of so. It it's not it it it's it's claustrophobic claustrophobic action in a way, you know, because uh, she's in, in in the in the spacecraft and everything. Mm-hmm. But um, it's. I don't know how I can't. Was it a pretty long movie too? Wasn't it? Was it over two hours? Yes, it's a two and two and a half hours long, and it's like talk, 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 talk. There's a lot of philosophical stuff going on in that movie, and I really like. I really appreciate that, and oh. I appreciate that Robert Zemeckis could get it made, and he still made it really incredibly visual too. To the, the locations that they went to, just amazing to look at that I movie. I know these big movies. They had, I mean, the, you know, some of them succeeded, some of them failed, but you had Titanic, you had Contact, you had The Postman, you know. These are, you know, big, giant, expensive movies. Contact cost ninety million to make and only earned a hundred million back. Wow. So it made back its money, but it, it certainly didn't profit. And you got to, it's the same with the Postman. It's like you got to figure, if you're Jim Cameron and you're spending that kind of money, you're going to totally dole out a formula that you know people are going to respond to. But try to challenge your audience. You know, try to challenge the American public with something, even if it's on a big scale like that. And you know. You, you start to see problems at the box office. Like, Gravity is not a challenging movie. You know, it's, it's pretty straightforward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can, you, can really, you can really read it really straightforwardly. I, I like to dig in and try to, try to, try to imagine all the, what it might be symbolizing and the other things it might mean because it meant a lot to me because of things that were going on in my life this month. It, 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 it tweaked things in my head that maybe other people weren't feeling about, about losing people and uh, people being cut adrift and, and, and trying to hold on to a life that is slipping away from you. Things like that that I, that I might write about sometime. But it, it really touched me on a totally, on totally different level than just a purely narrative um, thrill ride level, you know. Yeah. And I think Contact did the same thing. It was really, really deep. I know. I've come to appreciate it over the years, and I really love watching. And I'm the most skeptical person. I mean, Craig and, and Michael and I took a hike, and we were talking about, Remember this, Craig? We're talking about life outside the planet yes. Earth, and I was saying how I thought really that there was a pretty good chance that we were totally alone. <laughs> but you know, because the mathematical possibilities of of uh, you know a series of events that ends us up, you know, where human beings have ended up, it seems like a, a series of random accidents practically that are to repeat that would just be you know one in a million. But then, as Craig pointed out, there there you could actually. There is a one in a million chance out there. I mean, that's how big the universe is. Yes, it's like a trillion stars. And so yeah. there's like a million, million stars out there that could be a one in a million right. chance. You know, my, my but brain, we'll never know because they're so yeah, far away. My brain can only comprehend a one in a million being an impossibility. But by the universe's standards, one in a million is kind of nothing, right? I know, exactly. A trillion, there, there's, when there's a million, million, that, mean, that means there's a, a million chances if there's a one, one chance in a million. Yeah. If that made any sense whatsoever, yeah, I'm just babbling at this point. No, I know exactly what you mean. I think about that all the time. As unlikely as as it is that that what happened here on Earth happened, and that we exist, there's so many other possible opportunities for that to have happened in the universe because it's it's just it's infinite, right? Right. Yeah. It's infinite, and that yeah. I think I think contact kind of sort of gets to that. I know people when I talked about it on Twitter, I immediately got back with the expected response, which was. 
the third act, blah, blah, blah. Oh, shut it with oh the third act. <laughs> I really love the, the ending of the movie, though. That it, It's the strangest ending to a science fiction movie, maybe since 2001 Space Odyssey, isn't it? It's just it's just surreal. I know, it is. It's surreal, and, and you know, yes, he, they try to explain it. But you know what? It's Carl Sagan, man. Yeah. Pay respect, per, first of all. Second of all, you know, it's a, it's a fairly plausible, intelligent, you know, rendering or, or you know, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, it's plausible, I think. Plausible. Yeah, I mean, um, or of what might happen given mm-hmm. if we could ever reach, you know, intelligent life. Who knows? Mm-hmm. I just looked up just just uh, real quickly to see how many stars there are in the galaxy, thinking there may be a trillion. It says there are two hundred sextillion. I don't have any idea how many zeros are in sextillion. <laughs> But it sounds pretty good to me. It sounds hot, isn't it? Is that just in, in this galaxy, or is that in the whole universe? In the, in the universe, I think scientists find two hundred sextillion more stars in the sky. Oh my gosh! Can you imagine? See, so it's just like are, yeah, inconceivable. Are, it would be naive for us to think that we're the only ones here. Well, that's the thing: is all the stars that we see in the sky at night are all confined to just our galaxy, and there's millions of galaxies just like ours. All over the universe, and that's yeah. unfathomable. Millions of galaxies, and I think like if you went up to Alaska or something like that, way up in the mountains, you can see um, the Andromeda, that galaxy. I mean, just imagine. I mean, mm-hmm. I for me, um, Contact was one of my favorite films of '97 because I do believe in extraterrestrial life. I, I really do, and I believe that. But I don't. I think they are so far removed from us that we're never really going to contact them. We're never going to meet because they're so. I mean, the idea of um, like light years are just like we can't fathom it. You know, like we will never reach another star in our lifetime, and I don't know when that will ever happen because it's so far removed from what we think in. In the language of travel, mm-hmm. well, just the light that we see from stars is two hundred is like twenty thousand years old from some of these stars. We're looking at a star, and the light left that star twenty thousand years ago. Right, we're looking at the past, pretty much. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, I agree with you. If we can't even fathom what life might be like on other planets, it's maybe there's just um, uh, you know, uh, one-celled organisms could be in charge of the planet. You know, they, they, it's, it's, you can't even imagine. It's just inconceivable. You can't imagine. Well, well you know, well, you know, scientists. You know, <laughs> <laughs> what happened there? I was trying to Sorry. interrupt Michael just as a joke because we were trying to talk at the same time. So oh, every I'm time sorry. we talk, I'm going to But no. you know, when I ever every time I hear scientists and they say, "Well, life could not possibly exist because of this and this and this and that," I go, "Well, couldn't there be life forms that?" Um, adapt to that atmosphere, to that environment. I mean, they just discovered here on Earth that there are life forms that are um, living in the ocean in um, temperatures that they didn't think they could live. And they're just finding the organisms. So now it gave them another type of um, idea that, huh, life could probably exist on another planet that's not the same makeup as Earth. 
Absolutely. Yeah, that's what I was trying to say a minute ago when I just went, went, went like blank there for a minute and said something about one-celled organisms. But I meant that the life on other planets might not even be carbon-based. It had, might not need oxygen at all, and they might be thrive on, on, on helium or hydrogen or something or arsenic, as far as we know. They might eat arsenic for dessert. You know? I was telling Craig that um, wouldn't it be funny if like we finally got we finally got uh, contact with the with the with, with extraterrestrial life and they came to Earth and they were like everything disgusting that we cannot face like they were completely disgusting and obese they had like an <laughs> asshole for a face and they farted out of their face when they talked and like they had no morals like they just like had sex with children animals at will. and that's how we would look to them too. <laughs> Like they would come to our planet, and we would have to, to to be polite and nice and everything. And they're like doing all these things we can't stand. They're, they're like revealing the things that human beings can't like think are the, the most disgusting, intolerable traits. Wouldn't that be so funny? What would we do? Just like send them packing or what? <laughs> well, if they can travel from one planet to another, then they probably uh, may be more intelligent than we are. No, I know, but that doesn't mean they're not going to have assholes on their faces and shit from their faces. Well, they might see us as food and just eat us all right. They're going to see that we have assholes between our legs and they're going to kill us because we're going to be freaks to them. Well, I mean, you know? nature is so diverse. Like, nature doesn't impose Christian morality. For instance, the bonobos, you know, they, they use sex as the, the way that they communicate. So they, they have sex with each other constantly. All different sexes, all different ages. They have no boundaries. And it's not like, oh, they're so bad. Oh, they're immoral. It's just that's their nature. That's how they've evolved so i always think about that like we assume that the people we find are going to be these rational intelligent acceptable creatures that we're going to be able to tolerate because we create them in our image but what if when we we can we finally meet them they're they're not only not what we expected but they're everything we hate well you know man wants to believe that life outside of our own is 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 non-hostile that's what they want to believe. But we don't know until it actually happens. We could come up with a life form that is hostile towards us. Mm-hmm. You know, so but it's the fantasy that man wants to believe that life out there is just like us, peace loving, you know, that that, that that they're here just to get to want to know us instead of coming here to destroy us. I figure they have been here. I think they've been here, and they've they just observed us and just moved on. It's like it's <laughs> whatever. Just, you know, that's right. <laughs> There's nothing to hear. <laughs> then we're all just fucked up here. Don't get any on you. Don't get any Earthling on you. Let's just move on. That's like they, they you know, look but, at each other um, and they go. They look at each other and they go. God. Yeah. yeah God. Okay. You know, we're out of here. <laughs> but about contact. I want to hear more about the Bobobos. Who are these people? <laughs> Bonobos. And I don't mean that in a racist way. They're actual monkeys. Oh, they're monkeys. I thought yeah, it was like a, like a community someplace in, in no, uh, they're East actually, LA or they, something. And, and this is the part people don't like to talk about, but we're close, closest in genetic makeup to the bonobos than we are to any other of the apes. Did you know that? I didn't so know that. I never heard the word before. The sexual <laughs> That's why the sexual impulse is so strong in human beings and, and we deny it, you know, so adamantly and yet it's there and it bubbles up in all sorts of ways. If you look at the bonobos, you you, you can understand human behavior. I'm not saying we'll ever go there, we'll ever be the bonobos, but they basically oh and by the way, they're totally female dominated. The females are the sexual aggressors and they're culture and they they just like masturbate each other all the time and they you know they have sex constantly and that's that's the way that they and they're the least violent of all the apes also but let me just say this one thing about the movie contact 
um, what I and get off the monobos. Um, <laughs> I just wanted to say one thing before Bonobo. I lose my train of thought. Okay. Um, the interesting thing about contact is that um, the whole concept is that radio waves were sent out, and it took seventy something years for them to reach us. Oh, we don't know how long it took. It, but I find interesting and fascinating about it is that our first radio waves were sent out back then. And who's to say that intelligent life form has already picked it up and now they're sending us something back, but we haven't gotten it back yet. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah, anyway, the bonobos. <laughs> <laughs> the masturbating monkeys. Okay, let's go back I'm to that. I'm just joking. No, no, no. No, what I, what I, one thing I love about uh, Contact is that it, is, it pays equal homage to people of, of faith and people of science. And if you're a person of faith, you have no trouble believing just believing that there's life out there. But if you're somebody who's science-based, you need proof. And that was Jodie Foster. And so I love when they say, when they ask her, they say, so you have to admit as a scientist that there's a possibility that this was made up, that this didn't happen, that it was in your mind. And she says, yes, as a scientist, I have to admit that as a possibility because I have no proof. And she's, she's having this ongoing debate with Matthew McConaughey, who's a man of faith. And he's always telling her that. I have no proof, but I'm going on faith. That's what, what the thing I most love about the movie because I see myself that <clears throat> in that way of a, a scientific, not that I'm a scientist, but that my brain works in such a fashion that I need, I need evidence, I need proof of something. I don't, mm-hmm. I'm not inclined to just believe. Well, you know, what, what I like about that, go ahead, Michael. No, no. It's just that with people who believe, like I do, with life forms elsewhere, they all some there are some people who just always have to go in with God. Well, we don't know if these other if there are creatures out there if they're gonna have the same God that we have. You know, people think that oh, so we're because once we finally find out that there is life form, that there's actual proof, we actually find the proof. Whenever that happens, the whole concept of God kind of goes out the window. Well, we, but you have to ask yourself where our concept of God came from in the first place. He didn't really reveal himself to us except through our own thoughts. And so that's what I like about the ending of Contact, too. It's Jodie Foster's character was creating something in her mind to help explain to her what she went through and what she saw. And, and in order to make sense of it, she invented this or created this story that may be part of her imagination. Isn't that what a religion was originally, too? Men trying to make sense of the universe and, and having visions, hallucinatory things or putting themselves into a, 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 psych, a psychic state where they get a vision. And those stories are what have been passed down to us as who God is. Someone first had a vision like that, and all, we're, all people who believe in God now are only believing the stories that have been passed down for 5,000 years or 2,000 years. Well, you know, you have those people that believe that God is actually alien, you know, that all the stories that came from aliens, you know, you have, those, you have people who believe that too. I mean... God is who knows if there was is there actually is a physical God we don't know because we've never seen him we only know from God from the Bible and what stories that we've read from the Bible mm-hmm. um so the concept is spirit is God is within I think each person you know mm-hmm. but when it comes to something outside of our realm, you know, we don't know, you know, it's, it, that's just how it is. We believe in God, but we cannot say, um, that another life form is going to believe in the same God 
or if God is an alien, you know. And, and that's where the story or if, started. Or if the he life could, form has a need for God. I mean, I believe we invented God because our brains and our consciousness is so big that it's unfathomable to think we just die and that's that. We can't handle it. We're, it's, it's much better to have an invented deity and to think there's an afterlife. Mm-hmm. So there, there, there's no guarantee that another intelligent life form would necessarily have evolved to need a God. Right. That's what I was saying. The people who have been prophets in the past and who have come up with the concepts of God that we that people believe in now, um, there's something in the subconscious mind that has made that has that is consistent across so many different cultures that has that makes people have the need to to do that to invent a creator and to and to invent higher powers. And uh, I don't guess other animals do that unless they. I mean, maybe our pets look at us as gods. You know, who knows. Aww. Oh, kitty. Uh, isn't that sweet? Well, maybe the um, the boobles do. You know, they might. <laughs> you know, my That's cat right. came over when, the, when I said that. My cat nope. came over. He did what? Your cat did what? When I said that, oh, kitty, my kitty came over. Of course, yeah, because God's calling. <laughs> the goddess. is a goddess. He's got a message no, from God. Not, it's not God. It's the petting and feeding machine. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> But that's what I like about Contact. It's amazing that it did such a, f- a fine job, a really smart, intellectual job of, of, a, of approaching that subject and, and not being offensive to anyone, not being offensive to scientists or not being offensive to a person who may be an atheist or, or a religious person, you know? I, I really have a soft spot for movies that grapple with big ideas like that, even if they, you know, they sometimes they come across as being... Corny or cheesy or whatever, but I love it when people grapple with those big ideas that you don't see movies grappling with very often. There were two or three times in Gravity where religious icons are, are shown inside, like, you know, when she visits visits the other uh, spacecraft, the other uh, pods at the other space stations and everything. There's You see the religious icons of people from uh, from China and Russia. You know, I think that that is there. Those are, that's not an accident. Those things are there to make you start to make you consider those things. You know, that movie, Gravity, it made me wonder, why would anybody want to go into space? I you totally know? would go into space in a red hot minute. Before we go, my favorite movies were, were um, L.A. Confidential, Contact, and I have to, I, I, I'm throwing out um, Goodwill Hunting for the sweet after. The sweet. Uh! <laughs> oh, thank, I'm glad you're throwing out Goodwill Hunting. Thank you. I actually watched that one, and it, it held up pretty well. I was surprised. That was one of the ones that I was surprised about. I had never really cared for it, but it uh, it works. It's a little on the nose, but Matt Damon is good. Robin Williams isn't that great, but whatever. Matt Damon. <laughs> <laughs> Not that a was fan. Miramax. Miramax really sold that one really well. They really sold the backstory of the guys growing up together, being friends since childhood and everything, and that really helped push that movie into the winner's circle with the Oscars. You've been listening to episode 50 of Oscar Podcast with Craig Kennedy from livinginsinema.com, Sasha Stone and Ryan Adams from awardsdaily.com with special guest Michael Gray. You can follow us on Twitter at Oscar Podcast. And the bumper music was All Mine by Portishead and Love Sick by Bob Dylan from 1997. Thanks for listening. I'm walking Through the streets that I did Walking 
walking with you in my head. My feet are so tired, my brain is so wired. And the clouds are weeping Did I Hear someone tell a lie Did I Hear someone's distant cry I spoke like a child You destroyed me with a smile While I was sleeping I'm sick of love And I'm in the thick of it This kind of love I'm so sick of it I see I see lovers in the meadow True, I think of you 
think of love I wish I'd never met you I'm sick of love I'm trying to forget you Just don't know what to do I'd give anything to be with you 